Welcome to the Backyard Professor Live Sunday evening sessions. I am here with my good friend, Steve Pinecker. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing really, really great, uh, BYP. You're so awesome. Uh, I'm so glad that we have this opportunity for me to be a co-host on your program tonight. Well, I am very grateful you are my co-host. We, uh, we've had a lot of fun together, and I'm looking forward to many, many more years of fun together. So fess up, fess up. This is your first actual live, isn't it? Yes, with the exception of hopping on Mormonism Live for three minutes to uh, to promote the, the movie screening last month of... Uh, Elder Pingree movie Elder Pingree. With, with Rebecca. That's the only time I this 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 will be the only time I've done live. Okay, we're really live. I can interact to you both barrels, brother. So All this right. is <laughs> let's do this. We have a uh, we have a wonderful guest on tonight. We are going to here in a few minutes. We are going to bring on Jonathan Neville, and we are going to learn about his version of what is called the heartland theory although just like he's just recently been telling us technically he's not a heartlander but but he has some idea you know there's various views of heartland information and looks like we've got a good crowd tonight why don't we get this started with the good stuff of course my opening that absolutely everybody says why do you play an opening we all just skip it <laughs> However, you and I won't. So here we go. Right. Let's get this show on the road, people. Yeah, baby. That's for you, Mark Crispin. I'm just looking at the, hold on, let me turn this noise up so that people can hear me yammer. I am just looking at the chat. Hello, everybody. Wave to hi to everybody. Gene Judson, Doug, Vincent Newton, Lemnos, Radio Free Mormon, Jewel Brown, Tim Rathbone, Dan Vogel, Doug Vincent, Jewel Brown, Peter Higgs, Newton Lemnos. I said Newton already, didn't I? Dan Vogel. I said Dan Vogel. You guys are all awesome. You're all here. We're looking forward to Richard Nugan, Gail Capson, Heather Raddick. Good to see you. Marcella McLeon. Holy Toledo. Heather Raddick. Good to see you. Okay. It looks like, uh, it looks like we've got at least three people here. Hey, uh, Steve Pinecker is with me co-hosting tonight. He does the world famous, world valuable. I mean, the presidents of the countries, 
greet this man with great respect. No, you run the uh, Mormon Book Reviews, don't you? Yeah. Mormon Book Reviews, we just uh, celebrated our two-year anniversary. And uh, just to think that, but then over the course of the last year, we're probably one of the fastest growing Mormon podcasts in the world now. It's pretty awesome. wild. Awesome. That, oh, and Mormonish podcast, Rebecca. Speaking of Rebecca, or is that Jordan? I don't know, or or both. Welcome to you both. I'm going to be having them on next Sunday. Yeah, so that'll be fun too. But for now, we have a uh, we have quite. Oh, and Paul Osborne, welcome, Paul. Good to see you too. Hey, hey, uh, Carrie. Can I just say, first of all, those are a lot of names I know too. They come on a lot of my stuff. They're familiar names. So I want to say hi to everybody in the chat as well. It's good. I'm looking forward to getting uh, feedback from y'all. And Carrie, yeah. quick question. How, how are you doing? Talking about I'm you. your co-host, so I'm going to interact with you. I want to know how you doing today. Me? Yeah. I, I am doing great. Uh, I've got a confession to make. Uh, okay. See this, the, the LDS Gospel Topic Series by uh, our friend Matthew Harris and yeah. Newell G. Bringhurst. Uh, I saw John DeLynn with a with a podcast with Matthew Harris talking about the historic, philosophic, uh, religious backgrounds, what led up to the gospel essays being put on the church website. And I'm all the way three-fourths through this, and I just started it this morning. I just got it yesterday in the mail, and I, I can't put the thing down. John DeLynn was right when he said, this is a great read. But I also wanted to do a quick... Shout out to my other dear friend, Trevin Hatch. He is a BYU professor, uh, and this is his book, A Stranger of, of, of or in Jerusalem. It's about the Jewish aspects of Jesus. And then with Eric Huntsman, he also did No Greater, no greater Love Hath No Man. And uh, this is about the Easter story, and so I'm, I'm enjoying those. And then I just recently, I've got to show off books. I'm the backyard professor. You're the Mormon book review guy. So, you know, we jive here. And then this one, Producing Ancient Scripture. Uh, I got this one a couple of weeks ago in Salt Lake when I was with you and Rebecca on Elder Pingree. So, and that's from Mark Amherst, McGee, Brian Hoglid, and Michael Hubbard McKay. There is some really interesting stuff here. This is the one, just for my audience, this is the one where Thomas Wayment demonstrates conclusively now that uh, Joseph Smith did have access and did utilize Adam Clark in his JST. So new in, new developments, new ideas. So. It is, but that doesn't, what's so fascinating is, you know, we, Joseph Smith was influenced by the milieu and the world and the people. And one of the people, one of the things that's so exciting about this guest is that we have somebody that's willing to engage the idea that Jonathan Edwards had a major influence on the, the translation process of the Book of Mormon. So if you're a faithful Mormon, this is the thing. You don't have to get caught up in these things as being necessarily anti. You can also say that if Joseph Smith was a translator and he was also a human and he was also inspired, that of course he's going to use the language of many of the people of his time. It's not necessarily should be viewed. And I don't think Joseph Smith was looking at himself as a plagiarist. I think he was looking at them as being inspired. And thus he was inspired by them as well. Yeah, we just happened to have a world-class scholar with us tonight. Let's bring yep. him on. That actually does 
demonstrate some Jonathan Edwards parallels. We might get him to talk a little bit about that, but tonight we want to hear his ideas on the Book of Mormon. There he is. Take a bow, Jonathan Neville. <laughs> and the cloud uh, I'm actually sitting down, so I can't really bow. But <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve didn't bow either, and I didn't either, so it's all good. Okay. <laughs> How's that for you? <laughs> How you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Good to be with you guys. It is fun to have you on the show. Uh, I want to thank Steve for introducing you to us and uh, getting you getting you excited to be on the show. I now I'm going to make a confession, probably a bad confession, but I'm going to make it anyway. Um, I am relatively new to this subject on the Heartland, and so this has been a really exciting week for me, a week of discovery. I've been watching so many of your uh, video podcasts with Steve and with, who is the gentleman that runs the quick, CWIC? Greg Martin. Greg, Mar Greg Martin. Yeah, I've, I've been watching several of your interviews with him, Jonathan, and I've been mm -hmm. looking at your... I, you've been on a lot of programs, so I'm very grateful that you've chosen to come on my humble little abode and let's talk turkey. <laughs> oh, wait. No, that's not one of the animals in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk. Than Thanksgiving Thanksgiving at this point. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, so really exciting, Carrie, to have this opportunity to be your co-host today. And I reached out to you on last week's episode after it aired. And Rebecca had mentioned about the possibility of me being a co-host. And I and of course, you guys were talking about the uh, the Salt Lake Tribune article earlier that day that had talked about the Yerman Thummim book that just came out this coming out, written, co-authored by James, uh, Jonathan Neville and James Lucas. And so I put two and two together. I'm on the phone with you. I'm like, dude, let's just get Jonathan Neville on because he's a really interesting dude. And you had told me you had just read something the day before about it. And you were like, yeah, let's do this. And then, of course, you've spent the last week watching the videos, getting learning about Jonathan and how really he's an original thinker. And, and can I just tell a quick story? Can I can I finally tell my Richard Bushman story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Tell your hey, just for the audience sake, seriously, y'all know who Richard Bushman is. He is a truly Mormon historian uh, who who is good. He jumps into all kinds of stuff. Some people like him, some people don't. But uh, Steve has a story that he told me and Jonathan, and we both went, oh, interesting. So, Steve, you've got the floor for 10 seconds, okay, and then we'll over to Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what's so important here is when I first started my channel, I started engaging Jonathan. I had, and I engaged him before I even started my channel by watching him on Rod Meldrum and then watching him do other videos. And I found this is a really fascinating guy. So I'm attending the Book of Mormon Perspective Forum that meets every single Monday night. And I, Jonathan was given a presentation and, and he started talking about this idea of a Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, evangelical theologian, um, having an influence on the dictation, on the uh, translation process of the Book of Mormon. I'm like, whoa, this sounds really interesting because now we're talking about my world, the evangelical world. Right. And so I start talking to Jonathan and I do my first interview with him. Well, then I meet Richard Bushman at the Mormon History Association. I asked him if he'd come on my program. He said yes immediately. And then a week or two later, we're taping. So I taped my interview with Richard Bushman again. I had like 100 subscribers. And afterwards, we're done taping. And I go to him and I say, what do you, what do you think about this Jonathan Neville? Because Jonathan had told me that he had met with Richard. And Jonathan, literally, there was a, a change in Richard's demeanor where he kind of had this sparkle in his eyes. And he just said, Jonathan Neville. 
He's a think he's a radical thinker in the best sense of the term. He's onto something with those plates and with the translation process with Jonathan Edwards. He said he was just he, he was praising you effusively, uh, praising Jonathan. Now, I've kept this story to myself because I only tell it now because of the, the endorsement he did of um, Jonathan's latest book. I got a reader's copy and I read this, uh, the endorsement. To now, what book is that? Hold it up so we can see the title. By means of the Yerman Thummim. Oh, by so that's your newest one, isn't it, Jonathan? Yeah, that just came out. The subtitle is "Restoring Translation to the Restoration." Okay, and okay. Bushman writes a blurb on the back here. So now Bushman is out as endorsing Jonathan. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. So I feel now I can tell that story that Richard Bushman. When I knew Richard Bushman was on board, and then I get these people pushing back at me when I go to MHA and say I'm friends with Jonathan Evel, and they roll their eyes. They're not rolling their eyes anymore, folks. Yeah, because of the contributions cool. that Jonathan has made. I realize, though, that Hannah Stoddard and some of them don't like Bushman. I'm just saying, be careful. We're playing with fire. Now, Bushman's a, Bushman's a fun historian. I've gotten quite a few of my friends and neighbors to read him Bushman, too. So, And uh, Dan Vogel, I will say, hey, Dan Vogel's in the house. Thank you for showing up, Dan. Uh, he had, oh, fine business operator. I see you, too, my friend. Got to say hi to him. Uh, Vogel's new book is at the print shop. So truly, uh, it's going to be 800 pages thick. We're talking bigger than rough stone rolling as far as the number of pages now. So Vogel has put his heart into this thing for several years. They're hoping to have it out before the MHA in May okay. so that they can talk about it. So we've got some fun things to look forward to. You know, all these historians, Jonathan here and Vogel and everybody has completely different nuances in some things. Others are complete loggerheads. Others, they mesh well. And that's what makes this fun. Yep. So, Jonathan, it's your turn to share with us and teach us some of your interesting ideas on this Heartland model. Now, why do you call it Heartland and how does it compare with the, we know there's a Mesoamerican model right. and you, you say a Heartland model. This isn't the Heartland of Mesoamerica, I take it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the Heartland is, when we talk about the Heartland model, it's referring to the Heartland of Central or North America, basically the United States and today. And so if you go through the Midwest, they call themselves the Heartland. And that's where it originated. The idea is that the Book of Mormon events took place primarily in North America um, once they left the Old World course. And the idea is that they they left uh, the Arabian Peninsula, went around Africa, crossed the Atlantic Ocean and landed somewhere probably in Florida, maybe South Carolina, that's not sure, but most likely the Florida Panhandle area. And from there, um, went up to Tennessee, and then from there over to Ohio and across uh, the Midwest and ended up in New York in, in the days of Camorra. So that's the, the basic. I have a little map here I could show you, but I don't know if maybe this is preliminary to do that or should I just? Sure, you can do that. And what I could do is, um, let's see. If I have I... it on a card here. So I, yeah, go than... put it right up to your, oh, your lights. There, 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 there. that's, that's. The sun's doing. shifting on us here, but this is the, the overview of the area. And you can so those see are great, those are the Great Lakes up on top there. Great Lakes at the top. Okay, okay. Down so here you've got uh, the Tennessee area, 
Okay. Over here is, I'm doing it backwards here, but this is uh, Illinois. Uh -huh. And then you, you, Ohio, Indiana, and on up to New York. Okay. So that's how we end up. I can see my, my son is shifting, giving me some different shade here. <laughs> but th that's the overview of it. And there's okay. lots of, there's lots and lots of nuances of this, lots of variations. I hear from people fairly often that have their own interpretation of, of how the Book of Mormon fits in North America. But the essence of it is, is the Hill Cumorah in New York or is it somewhere else? And that's, that's the real dividing line between all the different theories. Because you have some, some Latter-day Saints and other, you know, uh, the restoration groups believe that the Hill Cumorah is in New York, meaning the Hill Cumorah of Mormon 6-6, where the final battles took place and the records were deposited and all that. Others think it was somewhere else. And you you mentioned the Mesoamerica. There's lots of other ideas as well. There's one in um, Baja California. There's some in South America. I, I think there's one in Eritrea and Africa. I know there's been a Malaysian hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, Moroni got around, didn't he? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I'm just saying that, you know, I did a blog post years ago where I, I pointed out that if, the descriptions of the geography in the Book of Mormon are fairly vague, as they are in most ancient uh, writings. Mm -hmm. I compare the um, Xenophon's Anabasis as an example. I, when I studied Greek, that's one we had to read. And if you didn't have a, a, a map, you wouldn't really know what he's talking about, how far they marched every day and so on. And since Mormon didn't give us a map, we're taking all these geographical clues, let's say, or passages, and we have to interpret them somehow. But there's a wide range of interpretation. And so that's why there's even those who agree that Camorra's in New York have a wide range of opinions. The, the map that I showed you is, I would say, is probably the, the most uh, widely accepted among people who believe Camorra's in New York. But it's definitely not the only one. And I, th I think, Carrie, you've talked to someone that had another alternative geography in the past. I do. And I believe he's here in the chat, Paul Osborne. He's okay. been, been looking yeah. at the Delmarva Peninsula. Right. Uh, That's and right. And, and there's another one, uh, William Midgley, I think, that has one that uh, I, I don't think know if you've talked to him. Yeah. Anyway, so, th and there's lots of them. Um, sure. And and that all makes sense, you know. But but basic. So when I when you say Heartlander, it's it's a difficult rubric because does that mean everybody who believes New York is where Camorra is is a Heartlander, or is it only those that subscribe to a particular interpretation like the map I just showed you? Is it purely focused on um, geography, or does it encompass other church history issues or even politics? I mean, there's all kinds of issues involved with that term it's a little it's become a little bit of a loaded term oh has so it? Not, yeah and so you know when i don't want to say i am or i'm not a heartlander because depending on who's using the term i am or i'm not you know so it, it's not it's a your core to me appears to be that Camorra is in new york yeah, and all yeah. else we're going to try to uh figure out Exactly. Is that yeah, fair? That's, that's, it, that's it's interesting. Just this morning, my wife said, huh, you know, you're having that Jonathan Nevelon for this uh, 
Kimura, New York? I said, yeah, tonight. And, he, and she goes, check this out. I just, I, I just got a brand new video on YouTube uploaded just yesterday where they have hundreds of the missionaries in New York. Guess where? Comora, and guess yeah. what they're doing? It's in New York. They're replanting all the trees, and right. they showed some old pictures of the hill that was completely covered. Mm-hmm. And they said, so we're replanting Comora so that we can have Comora <laughs> back how Joseph Smith had it. So they think it's in New York. Kind of yeah, you know, and it's funny. There's even uh, some photos of Camorra from the late 1800s where there were no trees at all on it. So, I, you know, it's hard to say what it was like actually in 1830. But I, I have a quick question about that. I always wondered, why did would, it, would they have removed uh, trees in the first place? Were they trying to farm that? What would have been the purpose yeah. of taking the trees out? Well, the, the southern part of that, it's a, it's a glacial moraine, basically, and the southern part is fairly flat and level, and so it was farmed. And as far as I know, nobody ever tried building terraces. It, it wouldn't be worth the effort because it's surrounded by farmland anyway. Mm. But the the Native Americans typically would keep the highest hills denuded so they could send signals over long distances. And so I don't know how, how far back we know what the uh, the vegetation on Kimura was. But really? hey, hey, can I ask a quick question? Um, it's just the Mormons basically that called it Kimura, though, isn't it? Didn't all their neighbors just call it Mormon Hill? Isn't that more of a Mormon thing with that hill? Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah. there was no Native American that was calling it Kimura before right. the Book of Mormon. Yeah. I'm just making sure. I got to keep these guys. Although, up. you know, you, you could argue that Moroni was a Native American and he called it Moroni or called it Kimura long before Joseph Smith came along. So in that sense, I'd say. <laughs> kind of interesting. We'll, we'll get into that maybe later tonight, but. Sure, sure. All right. Um, so, okay, now let me, and this is, pro, I'm not trying to go off topic here, but I just read something this week. I'm, I've been dying to ask you. I'm not trying to throw a surprise question at you. I promised I'm not going to sabotage you here, but. I do have a question that really kind of, oh, uh, it, we we do know, I mean, uh, Doug Vincent and I did that video on the Erie Canal here a couple of months ago, and he showed the geology of that particular area in New York, and we right. know that it is a glacial moraine. Th- those can't necessarily be hollowed out with great big rooms with tables full of gold plates and the sort of labor and stuff, can they? How does that work? You know, I hear that all the time, and, and oh, I have two, two responses to it. One is there's a huge cave system all through upstate New York, and, and there's caves that are open to the public that people can go see. It's a, oh, I did not know that. It's, yeah, there's there's a big one in uh, Rochester, and then there's one further east and still in upstate New York. I don't know what the subterranean ge- geology is around the Hill Camorra, but the idea that these are just piles of rubble or something that were left uh, is, I don't know where that idea came from, but I have actually dug into some of these moraines with a backhoe, and I can tell you they are pretty solid. They're they're mostly clay deposits. And mostly in fact, a bunch of pebbles and sand then. Well, on the very top there is, you know, some. Well, but you yeah, go down two or three feet. If you go down two or three feet, you hit solid clay. And it's very difficult for even a backhoe to dig into. And so, and, and they're probably different ones. I mean, I've dug into a couple of them. And so okay. they, um, 
you know, it, it wouldn't be that difficult in, in a clay structure to build a supported chamber at all. You know, I, I, I used to think that. I, yeah. I carry on. I've heard that before. But the, trick, heard... the trick is getting those gold plates from Mesoamerica into that room, pal. <laughs> well, yeah, if you had to come all the way from Mesoamerica, that's a whole other deal. But. <laughs> Well, I just, I just real quick, you know, Jonathan, I just, you know, maybe give a little backstory too about how most of your life up until like the nineties or so you would have considered yourself a Mesoamerican. Matter of fact, you even got like a, a copy of Sorensen's uh, Moroni, uh, Mormons, what would be later called Mormon's Codex. You had like an early version of that. Um, you, you went in, down to Mesoamerica and looked at the structures and the ruins. So you, this, you becoming uh, more interested in the idea that the events may have transpired in the heartland is a relatively new thing. In, in so maybe just talk about the evolution. Okay. Of that. I appreciate that, Steve. Yeah, I will. So you know, I grew up in the church. Uh, after I was baptized when I was nine, anyway, but I was in a uh, mixed faith family, and so they, um, you know, we all learned the hemispheric model back in the day. And then when I went to BYU, we started hearing, I had a class from John Sorensen. We, we heard more about this uh, limited geography in Central America. And that had a lot of appeal. It feels like I'm getting in the shade here. I, mean, I don't know. If, uh, anyway, um, so that had a lot of interest and appeal. And I, you know, I, was, I used to go to all the uh, Fair Mormon events and with, uh, Carrie was involved with early in the day, you know. I got all the farms reports and so on. And in fact, my when I went to law school, my last year in law school was the first year that Jack Welch became a professor there. And oh. I, I was I was doing a joint program. And in my MBA classes, we were talking about the Hugh Nibley, um, you know, seeking for Zion and how, how do you reconcile that with a business or a legal career? And so I talked to Jack for quite a while at his office one day about all this, about the difference between reality versus our aspirations for establishing Zion. But I was a, a total fan. And so my first job out of law school was I clerked for the, the chief justice of the New Mexico Supreme Court in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And in our ward, there was an archaeologist. He and I became pretty good friends. But John Sorensen sent him his early manuscript for peer review. And it was all on I copied the entire thing because I wanted to go through it myself, you know. And so this would have been in the early 80s before it was actually published. And this archaeologist and I went through it, and I was fascinated by the whole thing, totally convinced, you know. And then life happened, and I didn't pay that much attention to it. I just kind of assumed uh, Mesoamerica was good. And then, I don't know, maybe 10 years, maybe it was a little more than that, I was writing a novel about how Native Americans were reclaiming their land under the treaties and the legal procedure and so forth. And a View friend of, of mine. View of the Hebrews too? What's that? View of the Hebrews too? Your novel? <laughs> no, <laughs> this is modern day. Sorry. And, <laughs> now that's an interesting idea. That'd be one to, to come up with. <laughs> anyway, so he, uh, he said, oh, you've got it. One of my readers said, you've got to read this guy, meet this guy, Rod Meldrum. And I'd never heard of him. And so he was a mutual friend. So he introduced me and I was talking to Rod and Rod said, if you want to know about this, you need to go on a tour with us. And I've been um, in, in my business career and other things. I've, I've been all over the world. I've been to all the continents and, you know, most countries, but I'd never really been to Ohio. And so he said, you got to come on a tour to Ohio. And I said, great, let's do it. 
And I went out there and for me, it was mind blowing because Wayne May was one of the tour guides along with Rod. And they showed me Wayne things. May, is that the guy that does the ancient America? Yeah, yeah. he does the ancient American. Yeah. And so I thought, wow, this is stuff I'd never heard before. And so I asked Rod, well, if this, this all seems to make sense, but how do we ever get tied up in Central America? you know, this with this Mesoamerican stuff. And he said, oh, it's because of these articles in the Times and Seasons. And so I started investigating those. And that's where I f first embarked on this whole endeavor. And um, I thought uh, that would be all I would ever do. I used, back in my, in my kind of venture capital career, I had, a, I worked with one of the richest guys in America that nobody's ever heard of. And he had a saying that was, the spouting whale gets the harpoon. And so he, he, none of his name or on any of his corporate documents, nobody knows how much property he owns and all this. And, and I thought, okay, am I going to be a spouting whale here by publishing a book about church history that goes against the narrative, the, the very first one? And I had talked with a couple of friends of mine who were emeritus general authorities, and they said, no, you've got to publish this book. This is really a big deal to discuss these articles in the Times and Seasons. And so I actually met with Sherry Dew and we discussed it. And she told me that she felt like she never really believed Joseph Smith was and could be an editor of the Times and Seasons. He wasn't a literary person. He didn't. He never did editing and he, he was busy and had all these other reasons. But she said, I, I just kind of went with it because that's what everybody told me. But she also said for her to publish my first book, it would have to go through correlation, which would take five, what did she said, 18 to 24 months. And I was impatient. I figured I was only going to do one book. So I just said, no, let's do it. So I went with the, the publisher that I have now. And we published it fairly soon. And sure enough, I became a spouting whale. <laughs> I attracted a lot of harpoons. And I, I figured, well, okay, this is just what I found. I'm not saying this is what it is. I'm saying this is my interpretation of the historical evidence. And it makes sense to me, you know. So, and I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything, but what, was, just, the, what was the name of that book, Jonathan? What was the name? That of was it? the Lost City of Zarahemla, the okay. very first one. Okay, that's and, one of the, any of the fifty you've written that that I'm going to have to spend three thousand four hundred ninety. There you go. Oh, yeah, only three thousand. You're getting a discount, brother. <laughs> well, they're not on Gold Place; they're on Silver Plates. <laughs> okay, that's why. Okay, all right. <laughs> So anyway, so I wrote the first one, and it had to do with this guy, Benjamin Winchester, who was an early member of the church. And I'm, I'm convinced that he wrote the articles, submitted them to uh, William Smith, who was the actual editor of the Times and Seasons at the time. And of course, uh, the traditional historians were outraged by the whole thing, confronted me, wrote articles in the interpreter and all that. And this has and to do with him. There's still What's that? Go ahead. Well, I can hear. You. I just want to clarify that he was when uh, these these in the Times and Seasons they were publishing the idea of the Mesoamerica model. If you are or, or Book of Mormon events or ruins were found in Mesoamerica, and it was yeah. thought that Joseph Smith was the editor and publisher of this. And John Anderson shows pretty conclusively that Joseph's fingerprints are not on it at all. That was one right. of the strongest arguments that they would use in favor of Joseph being in favor of a Mesoamerican model. Yeah. But didn't wasn't his the editor responsible? What wasn't he the one passing them off though? I don't know that that might. Well, be it says on, on the the uh, boilerplate at the end of the, each newspaper says mm -hmm. it was printed, published, and edited by Joseph Smith. But nobody thinks he was down there running the printing press. 
he, he in yeah. other words, he was a nominal printer and he was a nominal editor. So in, in a sense, he was responsible. But I, I pointed out in my books that there's there were a couple of instances where he didn't even know it was in the newspaper until after it was printed. He went and picked it up and was reading it. And so that's far from being a hands-on editor. Okay. And I, I need to get into the whole detail of Benjamin Winchester, but yeah. although that's a, it, would be an interesting discussion to talk about the times and seasons. I, I ended up doing three books on it because after I did the first one, and my critics were all freaking out about it. I've got that one. The advocate. An advocate, and okay. and I did find those seven letters. They're also yeah. messenger yeah. advocate. You were telling us yeah. that a couple of days right. ago, so I've been looking into yeah. it and reading them. So okay. <laughs> well, so I did the I did my first book. The critics went nuts, and I. But what had happened is I had a ton of material, but my publisher says no more than 300, 350 pages because that's as much as someone will read. So I after they uh, the harpoons started flying, I thought, well, I'll just publish the rest of it, and it was two additional books. But I, 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 that would be a great topic to discuss someday. But for right now, you wanted to focus on the geography. The only reason I bring that up is... We'll have more with you. Okay. But I, I bring that up because the um, the Mesoamerican geography was based on the idea that Joseph Smith had endorsed the Mesoamerican setting. And so because of that, people, the tail started wagging the dog. And they started saying, well, if Mesoamerica was the setting, then Camorra is too far away to be the real Camorra, despite what Oliver Cowdery had said. And that's why they... It, to this day, the Mesoamerican advocates pr promote a limited geography in Mesoamerica, which is too far away from New York to be the scene. In fact, John Sorensen said something like, um, there are still a few Latter-day Saints who believe that uh, the, it's, it, I can't remember the term, but it was something like a witless sci-fi film to believe that the, the Nephites went all the way to New York from Central America. And that's how he phrased it. It's a witless sci-fi film. And so, those kind of things made, I started looking at that and I thought, well, if we take Joseph Smith out of the equation of Central America, then what are we left with? And by the way, I've since shown that in the Wentworth letter, he refuted the Mesoamerican stuff, but that's another getting in the weeds too much, probably. But yeah, we'll do another he, broadcast on that. Another broadcast. Okay. Well, I'd love to do that one. But yep. So um, I got to watch out. My camera just keeps adjusting as I put my hand up. <laughs> The sun, I told you the sun was shifting on me. You're getting beams of light coming at you from this yeah. angle. I'm scared of the beams of light that might come overhead. Like Joseph <laughs> Smith. That's the one I'm watching for. That's right. You better. You should be watching for that. No, I'm, I'm sitting out here looking at the ocean and realizing the sun's going to be setting here. In a, in a, You've got a view of the ocean right now, Jonathan? Yeah, I live on the coast in Oregon. Oh, my gosh. Spoiled rotten. No wonder you're so happy. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, Carrie. I've I've lived in, I've lived in Europe, Asia, Africa, and I've traveled all over. I think the best place in the world is right here in Oregon. That's why I live here. Because I could well, live anywhere. You and I are going to get together. We're going to come up. We're going to have some hot dogs right. with each. I think you told me you've never even been to Oregon, which I is have. unbelievable. No. Well, you know what? You better be prepared to move if you do come over here. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe I better wait for a few more years before I retire. Yeah, probably so. Most <laughs> well, anyway, we have a lot of people who come here and they just plant themselves and look for a house, and there aren't many houses and so on. But they all want to live here because it's so awesome. But anyway, um, 
Oh, what, I, now what, I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> we were talking about uh, the geography of Oregon or something. Yeah, yeah I think that's where the, the Hill Camorra is now, right? Is that, is... Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> now, what, what we were talking about was this idea that uh, Camorra's in New York is too far away yep. from Central America. And this, this idea really originated in the late 1800s with an RLDS scholar named Stebbins. And I think it's Henry A. Stebbins. And then he's, he and uh, another guy named uh, Hills, Lewis A. Hills, developed what, what turned out to be a Tucumoros theory. And Hills actually wrote, uh, created a map, published a map in 1917, where he showed the Book of Mormon events in Central America, and he showed Camorra in Southern Mexico. And in their discussion, they, they talked about how Oliver Cowdery even though, yeah, he said Camaro's in New York, but he, he didn't know that much and he wasn't that credible. And, you know, we're just going to go with this new theory. And so that's where it originated. Um, later on, LDS scholars picked up on it. Um, John Sorensen credited Hills with being the first to locate Camaro outside of New York. Although a lot of the Mesoamerican advocates today don't know this, but it originated with these RLDS scholars. And so... I looked I just, at all. I these. just recently found that out myself within the last couple of years. I mean, that's yeah. how far behind I am on the times. I, well, I, I struck you're not that head. far behind. Not many people seem to know this. Uh, yeah, yeah, we've we've had some good discussions on Shade's message board. So, very. Okay. So anyway, so I I looked at this whole thing and I thought, okay, how did we? Uh, why do we think it was in New York? You know, where did that start from? And when I read the, the explanations on Fair Mormon or Fair LDS, whatever it is now, they were all saying, well, yeah, Oliver Cowdery said this, but he was wrong. And, and everybody was speculating. And it was a false theory that someone developed that Joseph Smith passively adopted when he wrote the letter in 1842. That's now DNC 128.20. And, and none of that rang true to me. So I looked into it more and just came across this letter seven that Oliver Cowdery wrote. It's one of these eight letters. And I guess I should explain that a little bit because in 1834, an anti-Mormon book called Mormonism Unveiled was published near Kirtland, Ohio. And of course it caused a lot of, of uproar. And one of the things in there it claimed was that the Book of Mormon was based on the Spalding novel. Solomon Spalding had written a novel explaining the mounds in Ohio. And so the Mormonism unveiled said that's what Joseph Smith was reading from behind the veil. In other words, he had a curtain. He was behind the veil. He was reading the Solomon Spalding manuscript. And that's why it's called Mormonism unveiled to say what was behind the veil. Oh, clever pun. I didn't know that. See, I've never even read that one. I just recently bought it from Sandra Tanner's bookstore before they closed. Okay. That's an interesting well, Okay. Yeah, so he said it was fiction based on Solomon Spaulding. So Oliver Cowdery fairly methodically went through and refuted the, the Mormonism unveiled in, in a series of eight essays, which he published as letters to W.W. Phelps. Kind of like, um, oh, I don't know, Steve, had a these oh. are these eight letters. And Steve had a comment about the letters I thought was interesting. You want to share that? Yeah, well, we were doing a Zoom call, and I was thinking about how it kind of rings as almost Pauline or like Paul's epistles, letters that he wrote, that it almost appears to me that it almost has like an apostolic sense that you have this man who's one of the three witnesses is writing letters 
And I almost feel like this is the, I just had this panel come on my program, Open Canon. Some of the top scholars of Mormonism came on to talk about. It was about. a good panel, by the way. I watched it today. It was, yeah. It was, I enjoyed it. It was great. But but the idea that there's other canon, there's other scriptures out there that have been produced by other Latter-day Saint traditions as well within the context of, like Claudia Bushman thinks that Lucy Mack Smith's stuff should be canonized. But I like the idea of epistles within the Mormon tradition, much like that that that, that parallels the Apostle Paul's. And I mm -hmm. almost wonder if it was meant to be looked at that way as these. And if, if maybe if Oliver Cowdery and doesn't have his falling out with Joseph, Maybe they would be a part of the Mormon canon. Maybe they still should be. Mm -hmm. but, the, but you said you're going to start calling them epistles because they kind of function in the same way that Paul's letters function in the early church. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And and after he had written the first three, I think he was ordained the assistant president of the church. And, of course, he was the one who gave the apostolic um, charge to the apostles, the first 12 apostles, and he ordained them and, and so forth. So he was integral to the whole history of the church. And so he wrote these eight eight essays, which are, were published as letters. And it'd be fun to go through each one of them at some point. But letter seven was the one where he talked about the Hill Cumorah in New York. And again, if you remember that he was refuting the idea that the Book of Mormon was a novel, he was explaining that, no, it was a real event and this is where it took place. And he said it was a fact that the Hill Cumorah, uh, referred to in, in what is today Mormon 6-6, was the hill in New York where Joseph got the plates. And he said, there's, there's a, if you look at, if you stand on the hill Camorra and look across the valley, it's about a mile wide. And he said, it was in this valley that these final battles took place. Calgary in the letter. Yeah. Yeah. Oliver Cowdery said that. Yeah. And so when I read that, I thought, well, why are we even debating this? Here's the assistant president of the church writing an official church newspaper and he declares it's a fact. And the other interesting thing about Oliver Cowdery, he was uh, serving as a, his career was at the time as a justice of the peace there in Kirtland. And he eventually became a lawyer. But he distinguished very clearly, very specifically between when he was speculating about something and when he, something was a fact. And I, I've, I've published a little article about how all the times he used the word fact versus um, opinion or speculation. For example, he, he said he couldn't tell how, how deep the stone box that Moroni originally built on the Hill Camorra was because it, Moroni had to accommodate erosion and debris on top of it. And so he, he talked about that a little bit as a, a matter of speculation. But he said it was a fact that these battles took place there. And so just reading that one letter in Messenger and Advocate that you just pointed out that you have, told me there's no wonder everybody thought it was a fact because he said it was a fact at the time. And it's so through here. <laughs> yeah, it's all through here. So then one thing led to another and, and it turned out it was copied into Joseph's journal as part of his life story. Um, Joseph gave these essays to his brother, Don Carlos to publish in the times and seasons where they were published. He, Benjamin Winchester asked him if he could publish them in the, in his gospel um, reflector in, newspaper in philadelphia and joseph said yeah definitely and sydney rigdon agreed oh and so then, these were being published everywhere yeah all, all the church newspapers in joseph's lifetime had it published in there except for the elders journal and that's because that had a limited run of i think only four well years. i mean you know how the elders quorum works so yeah well there's that too i surprise yeah. anything happens right <laughs> 
<laughs> Especially now that it's a bunch of old guys. But anyway, yeah, so, right. so the point is, it was ubiquitous. Everybody knew. Everybody was reading it. Yeah, these yeah. letters. Yeah. And this is the thing. This is the thing too. We also have to take into account is Joseph and Oliver had conversations with each other. They had a conversation. Did Jerusalem have walls? Well, let's find out. I don't know. Let's inquire. Uh, you know, did uh, did, did that What's that? Wasn't that with Emma? The Jerusalem. Yeah, that, that was with Emma. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a good point, Steve, because right. at one point in these letters, when Oliver was talking about the arrival of Moroni, he says, well, he's he always referred to Joseph Smith as our brother in these essays. But he said, our brother is unable to tell me what time of night it was, but it was after everybody went to bed. So he was obviously having a discussion with Joseph Smith about this when he was writing these letters. And that's the thing, too, is I believe that there's conversations have to be happening with Oliver and Joseph. And we also have to, I would say, if you're a faithful Latter-day Saint and you believe that every September Joseph goes up to the hill and he's educated and taught by Moroni, that you have to figure that some of the things that Moroni was telling Joseph was making it to Oliver's ears. And so the, the fact that this is published by Oliver, it's not refuted by Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith was, I, I imagine that if I'm being taught by Moroni, I'm asking Moroni these very questions. So you're saying, and, and it's probably Moroni's description that Oliver Cowdery is giving when he says, you look out the, and you see out this plane, this is where the battle happened. I imagine that Joseph could have, I can imagine, Joseph probably had a similar statement, made a similar statement to Oliver that then Oliver puts in these epistles. Well, it, it, that's a good point, Steve. And, and he said it was in this mile wide valley. If, if you just read the Book of Mormon and say this battle happened at Cumorah, it could have been on the other side of the hill. It could have been at a greater distance. But he said it was in this valley between these two hills specifically. Now, the other element of all this that, that is quite interesting is another way Oliver knew that this was a fact was he'd been in the repository of Nephi records in the hill Cumorah. He, he talked to Brigham Young about it, at least, and Heber C. Kimball and Wilfred Woodruff reported on that. And, and what I find really fascinating, when you read Brigham Young's account of this, it was in his next to the last sermon before he died. And he specifically said, I'm going to relate this now because if I don't, it'll be forgotten in the church. And despite his effort to have it in the Journal of Discourses and being explicit about what Oliver Cowdery told him, it has, by and large, been forgotten in the church, just as he feared. And he, he said that Oliver didn't talk about it in meeting. In other words, he didn't talk about it publicly. And it makes sense that he wouldn't talk about it publicly. But and we could talk a lot about the plates and Camorra and all that. Let me let me just, because we're going to run out of time if I get into this much oh, no, detail. It's not 200 hours. Didn't we agree to that? Oh, that's right. But just not consecutively. <laughs> oh. oh, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, don't forget that part. Yeah, so um, what, what, I wanted to, what I wanted to cover is, just let's say I, what I did is an experiment. I, I said, my, and it was actually my wife that instigated this. She said, all right, if Camorra is in New York, how does the Book of Mormon describe the geography? And she made a list of, I don't know, two or 300 passages that had the uh, some directions in it. So I took it on as a challenge. And I thought, well, rather than take the opinions of all these scholars about how the Book of Mormon fits, what if I use what Oliver Cowdery told us as the pin in the map. I said, okay, we know Camorra's in New York. How does the rest of it fit? And that's what I did. 
that's when I wrote that book um, called Moroni's America. Because w when I look at, at this map that I showed you at the beginning here, this one. Right, right. Uh -huh. It fits all the descriptions in the Book of Mormon. And it's based on three theories or three principles, I guess, of interpretation. The right. first one is that the idea that um, land northward and land southward are relative terms, not proper nouns. And so for those of you who are familiar with Salt Lake, if you're in Salt Lake, Provo is the land southward, right? And Logan is the land northward. But if you're in Provo, Salt Lake's the land northward and St. George is in the land southward. So as a relative term, it shifts by where the speaker is the land northward, land southward. Because in other words, Salt Lake could be the land northward or the land southward, depending on if you're in Provo or Logan. So, okay, so what we're talking about is not is not moral relativity, but geographical relative. Exactly. Yeah. Good way right. to put it. Okay. So it's just a relative term, depending on where the speaker is. That was the first principle. The second is the idea that Everybody, well, let me back up. Everybody asks me when they, they talk about this geography, so where's the narrow neck of land? And I always say it's in Ether 1020, because that's the only place in the Book of Mormon that mentions the narrow neck of land. Where? They say, no, it's, it's, all, it's all over the Book of Mormon. I said, no, it's not, if you read it carefully. There's a narrow neck of land in Ether 1020. There's a small neck of land, and there's a narrow neck, but it doesn't say of land. And so when I... Hey, and it's only in ether? Ether 1020, yeah. So when you look at that, there's three different terms. And I, so my hypothesis was there's three different terms because there's three different things. And when they say a narrow neck of land, it was to distinguish it from a narrow neck, which is often referred to as a waterway. You know, if you have a narrow passage of a waterway, that's a narrow neck also. And so I, that liberated me from this hourglass shape that everybody talks about all the time. And so, which doesn't even really fit in Mesoamerica anyway, but, you know, people you try to find it down there. So along those lines, I was curious, what was the usage of those phrases in Joseph Smith's day? So I looked at the writings of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and, and a few others. And when George Washington was talking about the the Revolutionary War, he often talked about a narrow neck of land. And one of them was in the really? Hudson River. Yeah, there's an island on the Hudson really? River that he was. He now, you've got reference to where he's written. Oh, that? yeah, I have all that. Yeah, I can send it to you. And that's in your book, Moroni's America? No, this is in another book I did about Camorra. Between, it, called you're going to cost me more money still? <laughs> it's included in the 3,000. <laughs> Okay, thank you. No, let, you know, Carrie, I'm glad you brought that up because, I, you know, when I first got involved with this, I had no idea how much of a spouting whale I was about to become because I thought I was going to do one book and that turned into three books just on the times and seasons. Then I thought, okay, I'll do Marauders America and I'm done. But then, of course, the harpoons came flying and I it just prompted me to search more and more and more. And I figured there's sure. the, the more I dig into all these things, the better all Joseph Smith's narrative looks, at least for me. And, and this example of the narrow neck of land is a good one because in Joseph's day, it was, there were dozens of narrow necks of land. 
let, let let me let me do something here. Now, I know this is not exhaustive, but yeah, I'm I'm gonna corroborate something you said about this narrow neck of land that to okay. me honestly is surprising because I thought the Book of Mormon was full of it too. Right. No, I'm yeah. full of the narrow neck of land. Not full. <laughs> okay. I'm making RFM laugh and okay, so I'm in the uh, I'm in the index in the LDS edition of the triple combination, yeah. and I look under narrow. Okay. Yep. Yep. But that's it. Whoop, that's it. There's not that's much. Funny. It's just yeah. that small part right there. Right yep. there. It's just that small paragraph. Narrow pass is only once. There, well, no, narrow okay. Narrow pass is different from the narrow neck of land. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's but yeah. I'm saying it's not full of the narrow neck of land here. No. Like that's no. not a major feature, apparently. Nope. Crap, I didn't know that. I, of course, yeah, I, you know, I've been going with the farm's materials, you know, being a former <laughs> apologist. Yeah. I was I was with the, yeah. the farm stuff, and so I I studied with, you know, Sorensen. I didn't study with Sorensen, but I did with Twetness and Matt Roper and those guys. And yeah. so, mm -hmm. but I, I had never, I did not realize that there's a narrow gate, but that's in Second Nephi. That had nothing to do with it. Right. And there's a straight and narrow path that leads to eternal life, but that's not what we're talking about either. Right, that's metaphorical. Yeah. I'm just showing you that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was for me. It was when I realized that there's only one narrow neck of land mentioned, and it was in the Book of Ether. I thought, well, why are we talking about this hourglass? There's, I, I understand the rationale for conflating a small neck, a narrow neck, and a narrow neck of land, and a narrow passage as all being the same thing. You can make an argument for that, but that's just an assumption and interpretation. It's not what the text says. So I look at it and I say, well, why would they use three different terms for the same thing? And and I started realizing, well, maybe they use three terms because there's three different things. And and, it, again, and you're that saying argument, like Washington and Jefferson did in their writing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not so that only was, that, I have other examples from church history too. But. That that to me was what really kind of cinched it for me was because again john jonathan's not afraid to engage joseph smith as a translator not a dictator dictating things that he's or that he's reading off of something mm -hmm. so he's this idea of engaging the text with your world that you're in and when he told me that narrow neck land is only mentioned once and i always thought isn't it interesting that only the Jaredites even use that term. The Nephites don't even use that term. And yet yeah. that seemed to, that one term seems to have affected the entire way people looked at the geography of the Book of Mormon for a very, very long time. And I thought if they had known that in Joseph's time, narrow neck of land meant something more like what you described it, Joseph, uh, Jonathan, then that changes yeah. everything. Yeah, it does. It changes everything. And even those who believe in the hemispheric model, it changes that too. Yes, there are people back then that believed in the hemispheric model. And I talked to Brett Metcalf and Dan Vogel, and they both insist, and, and I respect them totally. But I think that what Jonathan's doing here is it's kind of like really opening my eyes to the other ideas that, that Joseph was dealing with. There, there's more to this text than meets the eye. And that's yeah. what I, I find what Jonathan's been really to go to find that. So to me, that was like the biggest aha moment for me. Was when I when I came from that. I'm I'm open enough to look into this quite a bit more yeah. now that I just sure. looked at that index one. So I'm looking forward. I, I honestly don't know one way or another. I will be talking to several different scholars about it. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah I'll, well, let, me, let, me give you, let me give you another example. So there's what I call a Sorensen translation. And I, I have these Mesoamerican guys tell me all the time, 
well, it talks right in there about a narrow strip of mountainous wilderness. And I said, no, it doesn't. And they said, yes, it does. And because John Sorensen wrote it that way. And I said, all right, you show me where it is. So, of course, they got out their Book of Mormon. They couldn't find it anywhere because Sorensen inserted the mountainous part. It's not in the text. Where did he do that at? In his writings and in all their Mesoamerican stuff. They, they talk about a narrow strip of mountainous wilderness because so he assumed it had oh, to be mountainous. Yeah, but it really says a narrow strip of wilderness. So it, just like with the narrow neck of land, they conflated it with other terms in the Book of Mormon. They've also added terms like this mountainous adjective that is not in the text. So as soon as I threw that out, I said, well, what is a narrow strip of wilderness? And there's a lot of ways that could be interpreted. It could be a mountain. I'm not saying that's implausible or irrational. But there's other interpretations as well. And one that I think is persuasive to me is a wilderness is an uninhabited area. What's a narrow strip of uninhabited area other than a river? And it, it, particularly the Ohio River goes dry. It did before the dams. goes dry in the summer. And so it was a narrow strip of muddy wilderness nobody lived in. But it was a, a boundary, a border. Anyway, that's... So the third element coming in connection with that is the idea that the Nephites traveled by rivers instead of walking everywhere. Because no ancient people walked other than people living in the deserts. But people who lived in a jungle area or forested area used the rivers as their means of transportation. And we don't have a lot of discussion of that in the Book of Mormon. But Mormon specifically said, I'm not even going to have time to talk about our shipping and building of ships. So <laughs> they were using the rivers. So once I put those three things together, using rivers, land north and land southward is a relative term, and narrow neck of land is one feature, but it's not the same as a narrow neck or the small neck. It opened up the whole geography. The third, the, I guess, answer, connected to that also was another assumption that I made that wasn't as categorical as those three, but it's the idea that there are two sea wests. And one, the reason I say that, the passage in Alma, two sea wests, because there's a passage in Alma that talks about, as I recall, it was the sons of Helaman or something that were down by the sea west south. When I saw that phrase, I thought, wait a minute, that means there must have been a sea west north also. And, and that fits with the geography. But, okay, I, I, I guess... I should explain also one more definitional term, and that is the term sea itself. Because I know the, the Mesoamerican guys are always saying, well, there's no sea west in this geography. And if you look at, at this map of the Midwest, we always think in terms of a sea as an ocean, and the Pacific Ocean isn't on here, so where's the sea west? So I was curious, and I looked up. You can see there's a, the Mississippi River here, right? Right. I don't know if you can see that, but it's right there. And I was, so I was curious how the Bible uses the term sea. And I looked in Strong's Concordance of all the uses of the word sea. And in Nahum and Isaiah, the word for the Nile River was translated as sea. So Strong says one of the definitions of, a, uh, of sea, the Hebrew word for sea, is a mighty river. And I thought, well, that's the answer right there. Because then the the Mississippi River qualifies as a mighty river. In fact, if you go along the Mississippi River... Yeah, but it doesn't flow north, does it? 
No, and it it's just, and there's a good reason. I'll get to the North Flowing River if you want in a sec. <laughs> oh, I'm just thinking so, that's the objections yeah. I've seen. So I know, I know, another one of those objections. So we'll get to that. But all right, okay, all if, good. If you go, if you go up the Mississippi River, you start running into all the parallels to Egypt, right? Cairo, Ohio, is located at the conjunction or the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi River. There's Memphis, Tennessee. There's, there's several uh, towns along the Mississippi named after the, the towns along the Nile River. And that's, and in fact, when you go there in Southern Illinois, it's still called Little Egypt because it was back in the day, they were able to har grow crops there when they was frozen in the North and they saved the people in the North with their crops and so on. So they call it Little Egypt. Anyway, so all these things kind of came together and I thought, all right, if, if we have the uh, Mississippi River as the sea west, then this geography started to fit together. So the last thing I did is just as an experiment was I had the um, city of Zarahemla located across from Nauvoo. And, and I don't know if you know this, Gary, but in, in DNC 125, the Lord told Joseph Smith to build a city across from Nauvoo and name it Zarahemla. And he actually said, have put the name of Zarahemla upon it, which tells me it was to be named after the individual Zarahemla, the name of Zarahemla, which was the first founder. And, and the Book of Mormon says that they always name the cities after the first founder. So um, you, mean, you mean the Zarahemla in the Book of Mormon? Right. You're proposing that because that was revealed across from Nauvoo to be called yeah. Zarahemla, that would be the reason yeah. why. Okay. Yeah. Now, now at, at this point, this was just a, a thought experiment, okay? Because I oh, said, okay. okay, we have a pin in the map in, in Camorra, in New York. Right. And if there's, let's say Zarahemla is across from Nauvoo, does this geography fit? And I was actually skeptical that it would fit because, you know, I've oh, been raised as an American guy. Yeah. Right. And as I went through it, it started to unfold and it fits, I think it fits perfectly, beautifully. And I can't wait to that. check into that. That's interesting. Yeah, it's I've really interesting. I've never heard of this before, so this is kind of yeah. cool. And, but like I say, there's other theories too, and I'm fine with this. Is where we get into the multiple working hypotheses, right? Oh, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah, because people can read the identical phrase and interpret it 180 degrees differently. Well, you know, just That's real quick. Jonathan, yeah. you know, um, uh, one of the things I think was really important is that you introduced the idea of multiple working hypotheses. OK, mm -hmm. so now what comes from that is Thomas Murphy, one of the top anthropologists in the country, decides he's going to uh, bring in one of his multiple working hypotheses using your model. And so mm -hmm. he came on my program and gave his view of his view of the Book of Mormon. He, he, he places the Book of Mormon setting in the 19th century context. That's when mm -hmm. his multiple working hypothesis is. He's, in the sense, a heartlander yeah. himself. Mm -hmm. And so he, he took it seriously enough to actually, and now that, that proposal that he made, that thing that he did on my show, now it, what he ended up being a paper that he co-authored with Sorensen and getting credits mm -hmm. my show, as being, acknowledges my show as being one of the factors for that. And my point being is, is that you're already having an effect on the academic, the serious academic community is taking yeah. you seriously which I think is key because a lot of people who are scholars are only, they're publishing to each other, but yeah. they're not really in, in, in doing peer <laughs> review. There's no evangelicals yeah. engaging the peer, the, the scholarships. There's no secular anthropologists like Thomas Murphy that are engaging you. 
that right. uh, they're engaging the, the other ones. So I think you what you've done is you've you've actually moved the ball to have mature adult conversations. And rather than this become these wars that we've had, that 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 it's become apologetics and it's not really scholarship. Oh You're taking away the fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, Carrie, this is this is even more fun though. Well, I it think is. it's fun, you know. It is because it's 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 good hearted. We're all sincere. We're all just helping each other out. None of us are claiming perfection or we have all the truth and all that stuff as far as studying the, these things. Yeah. And so I think it's very healthy. I love it. Well, I just oh, that, I, I, you I raise I, your I, hand. <laughs> I, yes, because I, I apologize for interrupting you, but I did this oh. with my former previous guest a couple of weeks ago, too, when they brought up the Hebrew. I looked okay. up the Hebrew because I, I'm going to be quite blunt with you. I did not believe what you just told me. And okay. now I can verify that what you told me is accurate. Isn't yeah. that cool? I mean, yeah. the, uh, the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon, okay. granted, it's a dated one. It's old, but it, it they keep updating it and, and bringing it up to date. Uh, and under the Yamim, Yamim, the sea, the waters, the great, yeah. waters, uh -huh. the great sea, Mostly the Mediterranean, of course. We're talking biblical land, right? Sure. The Hinder Sea, the Back Sea, the Mediterranean, a, a particular part, the Red Sea. Come on, I just saw it. Hold on. The Sea of Salt, the Dead Sea. The... I just saw it. Oh, yes. Of a mighty river, the Nile. There you go. Yeah. There it yeah. is. Brown Driggs Driver. Page four eleven. No joke. Neville's not just talking out his well, left ear. You can look in Strong's Concordance online and see it real easy. You know, this is funny because the Nile and the Euphrates, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. And the Persian Gulf. How interesting. The shore of the sea to see. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, okay. All right. Okay. You just went up in my estimation. Luke. If you're going to quote the Hebrew and, and you do that good, I'm I'm with you. You know what? I, I was with a uh, an evangelical archaeologist one time, talking about this, and he had, he, he was familiar with the Book of Mormon, and he said, "So where's the Sea West?" And I said, "Well, it's in Mississippi." And he goes, "That's not a sea." And I said, "Yeah, it is." Looking Strong's Concordance. So he had Strong's Concordance on his laptop. He looked it up just like you just did. And he read that, and he looked at me, and he says, high five. <laughs> Give me a high five. <laughs> As the Germans would say. Well, I looked. Okay, so you're saying he looked up in the Strongs. I haven't looked yeah. it up in the Strongs yet, but yeah. I'm I'm perfectly comfortable saying it's in the Brown Driver Briggs because yeah. that is standard. He would like and stuff yeah. there. Yeah. So there sure. you have it. I think it's important. Yeah, so, you know, just, Jonathan, we're, I just, we're talking about multiple working hypotheses. Could you just kind of briefly describe to the audience, because they may be hearing this for the first time, okay. what exactly is a multiple working hypothesis? Yeah. Well, I my my approach to analyzing these things is based on what I call the faith model. And I actually did a little whiteboard, but I'll, I'll just explain it. So the idea is that there's facts. And, and facts are objective facts. And I consider them evidence of reality. Okay, I don't want to get too esoteric on this, but the idea is, for example, if you have a historical document, the existence of that historical document is a fact. Everybody can agree on that fact. Regardless of, of your other beliefs, we can agree that this is a fact. Okay. Now, to interpret that fact, we have to make assumptions. 
And that's where we start to diverge because we have different assumptions. And then we make inferences based on our assumptions that kind of fill in the blanks. Right. And then we come up with a theory to explain it all. Right. And from that theory, we develop a hypothesis to apply to additional facts going forward. And the example that I've used in my, my next book that will be out in a month or two is from Lucy Max Smith's um, history. And in her history, when she dictated the first version of it, she said that when Moroni first came to Joseph Smith, she said that he told her that the record was deposited in, a hill, in the hill of Cumorah and that Joseph needed to go there, remove the moss and leaves, and he'd find a stone, he could find it. And so there's three ways you can interpret that, essentially, based on your assumptions. If your assumption is that the Book of Mormon is fiction, then either Lucy was lying or Joseph Smith lied to her. That's your assumption. And then you make inferences and have a theory accordingly. Okay. If your assumption is that Kimora is not in New York, then you make the assumption that Lucy was repeating this false narrative about Kimora being in New York, or she was lying either way. If you believe, and that leads you to your conclusion, or if you believe, if your assumption is that Kimora is in New York, then you accept what she wrote and you, you make a, um, a theory accordingly. So it, it's all, it's another way of describing confirmation. Here. Let me know if I can help. So, okay. Did I say uh, Alexa or oh, something? Right. Your computer does that every now and then. Huh? Okay. okay. Right. So the the no. point of this analysis is I, I think it's really crucial for us to agree on, on the facts, the objective facts that we can all see and agree to. For example, this definition of C in Hebrew. And then identify our assumptions because that's where we start to diverge and that's where we can see. And, and it's not, the objective is not persuasion. We're not trying to convince anybody of anything. We're trying to understand one another better. And that's what is so commendable about Steve and his approach with uh, Mormon book reviews. It's not a, a diatribe about trying to force people to believe something. It's to help people clarify what they really believe. And, and I, in my own view, the only way to do that is to start with facts that we can all agree with, and then we can explore why our interpretations vary. And my ideal scenario is to have a, a full range of, all, of um, working hypotheses. And the reason I say multiple is because we all have different ones. The reason I say working is they have to incorporate the facts somehow. And the hypotheses is a, a rational interpretation of those uh, working facts. Okay. So we can have multiple working hypotheses. It could be, you know, everywhere from a, a virulent anti-Mormon critic to the, the staunchest, you know, President Nelson in the church. And we all look at exactly the same facts, but we differ because of our assumptions and our inferences. And once we can get to that point, then I think people can make informed decisions and they can say, well, I agree with this assumption and here's why. And, mm -hmm. and so then it follows from there. Or you can say, well, I don't agree with that assumption, but I see why you have that assumption. You know, Steve and I have talked a little bit about this before. I've asked him, well, why do Christians accept the Bible? <laughs> you know, because there's really no evidence of the events that took place in there. And it's just, they assume because of their traditions, basically, right? And their faith. 
But that's good because some people will take that same Bible and say, I don't believe a word of it. I assume it's false. Other people assume it's true. Other people assume, well, part of it's true and part of it. But if, if you can agree to the fact and then lay out your assumptions, we can understand each other. There's no reason to argue about it or be, contend about it. Interesting. So, All right. yeah. so let me mention one thing, though, as long as we're talking about geography. So Carrie sent me a, a link to a post from, I think it was five years ago <laughs> on a yeah. particular blog. And I had zero recollection of that. To me, that's like ancient history five years ago. I, I loved the whole comment section. Yeah. Neville yeah. Land, uh, right. Peter Pan or someone like that. Yeah. yeah. The comment section went, if you was to print that stuff off, you'd have a book, man. And I it know. Was, it was crazy. I was impressed so, with the self-control you had in, in light of all the vituperative comments against you. <laughs> well, well, you have to understand two things part of that. First of all, this is not my job. And so I'm not defending my, uh, you know, my written repertoire of articles or what I've told thousands of students. I'm not defending any of that because I don't have an agenda there. And right. it's also not my career. I'm retired. I don't, I'm independent. So I don't need to worry about a boss or what, you know, my supervisor on or peer reviewer or any of that is going to say. So I'm, I'm not aspiring to be hired by the church history department or whatever. Right. So there's that element. But then there's the also element of having practiced law, because when you practice law, you're in court, you argue with people. You're, it's the same model, basically multiple working hypotheses. In that case, you're not really going towards an understanding. You're going to persuade a jury or a judge but you still have to recognize that you're dealing with everybody has the same facts and it's how you, your assumptions and your interpretation of those facts that makes the difference. And I think too much in our apologetics, we haven't even agreed to the facts to begin with. And that should be the starting point. There's, I, I don't think there's any justification for not accepting a set of facts because they are objective. We can all see them. Go ahead. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, I don't getting back to this, off that's all right. So getting back to the, this idea of interpreting the Book of Mormon to fit a geography makes sense to me because I start with the assumption that Oliver Cowdery told the truth. And not only because he was the assistant president of the church, but because he had personal experience in the Hill and with Moroni and, and with Joseph Smith and all that stuff. So to me, the, the most credible person on this whole topic is Oliver Cowdery, because Joseph didn't really talk about it that much, but he delegated the writing to Oliver Cowdery. And so that's why Oliver Cowdery was a hands-on publisher and so on. So I, I start with that assumption, and I'm happy I've declared that assumption pretty clearly, I think. Sure. And the people who disagree with the New York Comora, their assumption is that Oliver Cowdery was either lying or mistaken. And I don't, they're a little vague on which that is because they try to say, well, it was his opinion, but he says, he didn't say it was his opinion. He said it was a fact. So he was either lying or mistaken. And, mm -hmm. and that's fine. I just want them to be clear about what their assumption is so that we all know what we're talking about. So okay. I think Vogel would probably say that Oliver Cowdery was lying or, you know, making it up. I don't know. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's the gist of what he's been saying all these years. And so there's a range of, inter of assumptions that people make. And we, the problem I've had with the apologists, the LDS apologists, is they haven't been willing to declare their assumptions up front. 
they just kind of hide it. They, they use sophistry to kind of bury it and, and pretend it's not there and so on. But if they want to come out and say Oliver Cowdery was either lying or mistaken and wrong, fine, let's have, let's have him say that. And then people can judge. Do you want to go with that or do you want to believe Oliver Cowdery? And so what my point of all this is that if you accept my assumptions about interpreting the Book of Mormon, then the geography fits very well in North America. Um, of course, all my assumptions can be challenged and people can have different opinions. That's fine. Well, and I'm not in a position yet to challenge you, young man, but I will tell <laughs> books where I can. Yeah, well, and, and I'm... I'm calling you young man because that will put me in your camp as a young man. I'm just saying. Not well, you know, Kerry, it's, it's like they say, it's very weird to be as old as old people are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I still play basketball. I still do all the sports. So I feel. So you do? Good. Oh, dude, you got sure. me. I have become too yeah. fat and sassy. I've got to. However, I am working on losing weight now. All I have to do to lose 20 pounds of ugly fat is lop my head, but then I won't be able to talk very well. So I've got to. Well, when it. you come out here, we'll play some tennis or something and oh, help you. Dude, I won't last three minutes. Give me a year so I can <laughs> drop 50 pounds and then I will. Okay. All right. All right. That's good. Anyway, the, the point about I, I appreciate you having me on the show. I don't know how much more time we have, but. Um, uh, three hours. Three hours. <laughs> do you, but, would, but you, would you like to do a question? Would you like to do a question and answer session? Um, sure. To yeah. field a couple of questions. We're at about a, an hour and 15 minutes. We usually do about an hour and a half to two, you know, two and a half. Yeah, hours. I think we talked before. I have another commitment in about 20 minutes. So, because we talked about doing an hour and a half tonight. Yeah, right, right. And that's all good. We'll have you back and we can do a, maybe in the next one we can do a, a, a further presentation of your stuff yeah. and do a longer Q&A. But if, if you guys, we, we can field a couple of quick questions. If you would type them in caps, I won't think you're yelling at Jonathan. It's all good. <laughs> but you type okay. the questions in caps so that we can ask him uh, a couple of questions and then we'll call it good. And we are planning, both Steve and I will, will host Jonathan again uh, and again and again and again. This man has written over 50 books. He's been busy in this life. I've read 50 books, but I don't have the tenacity to write 50. But anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, don't worry about reading anything other than my oh, church. Paul Osborne says books. he would love to have you back, so we will. And uh, okay. I know Paul is the gentleman that works on the uh, Delmarva Peninsula over there uh -huh. in Chesapeake Bay area for the yeah. for the nor uh, northern the geography. I'm not saying he's a heartlander either anymore. You are, but yeah. Just say now he says that it's because Joseph Smith had to have some kind of a landscape. He doesn't believe in the Book of Mormon, so he's saying that that comes from his imagination, and it wouldn't matter to him whether the geography perfectly fits or not. The general basis of it is where he's. Okay. Just so, yeah, sure. like you say, multiple working hypotheses. Right, okay, exactly. so, and those Okay, uh, how many six cent stamps in the dozen? Oh, fine, business operator, you are such a hoot. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Debbie Donovan, hello, welcome back, dear Jonathan. What is the most important takeaway from your message? Would you say? I would say mm -hmm. that, in my view, the extrinsic evidence 
corroborates the teachings of the prophets about the Hill Cumorah. Now, when you say extrinsic evidence, what do you mean? Extrinsic evidence. I mean, in terms of geography, geology, anthropology, and archaeology. Oh, oh, okay, okay. So that's that's extrinsic evidence outside of, of the religious realm. And I, I think that that all corroborates what Oliver Cowdery said about the Hill Cumorah. That's okay. the most important thing, Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Okay, okay. So Heather Reddick. Hang on, we'll get another question here. Thank you, Heather. It's good to see you again, too. Um, it's good to see all of you. I saw a fine business operator. And Elisa Gallien, thank you for coming. Patty Cake, Lance Hemp. Oh, here we go. Wait, so, I, I see a question on here. Is this the one we're addressing? Yeah, I'm just saying hi to everybody. I like this. <laughs> what happened to the supposed golden plates? And please don't say that the angel and I took them to heaven or whatever. Well, you don't have to ask me not to say that because I would never say that. That doesn't make any sense to me. So, Ooh, you heard it here. Would you mind repeating that? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me that Moroni would take them to heaven. I mean, they were a physical part of this earth. Interesting. So, here's I, I wrote a whole book on this too, actually. Carrie. What's the name of it, John? It's called Whatever Happened to the Golden Plates. <laughs> That's, That's the, the title of the book. Is that, that is the title of the book. dollars I'm going to spend? No, that's an extra fifteen hundred for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> so no. you don't think the Amaron I took the place? No, of course not. Because here's 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 the explanation. You probably haven't heard about the two sets of plates yet either. I okay. haven't. I, I probably ought to explain. Should I explain that, Steve? I don't know if we have sure. time, but just, just give us a quick okay. rundown, and we'll okay. go into depth later. The quick rundown of it is that when Joseph Smith got the plates from the stone box, those are the abridged plates. And it's, it, the title page identifies them. The title page says what was in that set of plates. It says abridged record of the Nephites, abridged record of the Jaredites, and then Moroni sealed it with his little commentary at the end. So Joseph took the abridged plates down to Harmony, Pennsylvania, translated them all there. And remember when they got to, they lost the book of Lehi, and so when he and Oliver got to the end of the record, they were thinking, well, let's go back and retranslate the plates of Nephi. And that's when the Lord said, no, don't retranslate that stuff. You have to translate the engravings on the plates of Nephi. But they didn't have the plates of Nephi in harmony. And this, was, this has been a, kind of a misconception, in my view, all along, that there is only one set of plates. I'm saying, no, there were two sets of plates. And I, I, I show this through the scriptures as well as through the historical evidence. But the idea is that when they finished translating the abridged plates in harmony, that's when the Lord told Joseph Smith through the Urban Thummim to write to David Whitmer to have him pick him up and go up to Fayette, New York. Before they left harmony, Joseph gave these plates to what he said was a divine messenger. And that guy took them. So when David Whitmer came down to, to Harmony to pick up Joseph and Oliver, they were riding back to Fayette when they passed this guy on the road, this messenger. Right. And uh, David Whitmer asked him if he wanted a ride to Fayette. And the guy said, no, I'm going to Camorra. Remember that? Okay. And David remembered that. And this, when, as a lawyer, you look for indicia of uh, reliability and credibility. And right. a lot of times that's in a detail. And David remembered specifically that was the first time he heard the word Camorra. So that has a lot of credibility that he remembered that specific event. 
So then they continued on to Fayette, and later the messenger brought the plates of Nephi over to Fayette for Joseph to translate. That's why he translated First Nephi through Words of Mormon in Fayette. And you're saying so, that's a second set of plates. Yeah, I'm saying the messenger took the abridged plates from Harmony back to Cumorah to the repository okay. of all the Nephi records. Okay. And he, the Lord had told him, Joseph has to translate the plates of Nephi. So he went through and found those plates of Nephi and took those to Fayette. That's why Joseph translated those in Fayette. Okay. Huh. So then after that, if, if there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot to this. So we don't have time to get into well, it. Yeah, now. We don't have got, but this is new to me. So this is quite. Okay. So then it's interesting too, when, when Joseph Smith showed the bridge or the, the place of, I, I should say, I'm, I'm, I want to clarify. Let me start over. When Joseph Smith showed the plates to the eight witnesses, his mother said that he got them from the messenger, which he did in, in Fayette. None of the eight witnesses ever said there was a sealed portion in there. Joseph's father said he weighed those plates and they weighed 30 pounds. Other people said that the original plates were really heavy and weighed 60 pounds, 50 or 60 pounds. Right. So that's always been an area of for explaining the plates, people said, well, they had to be imaginary because there's different descriptions of them. But I think what happened is the eight witnesses saw the plates of Nephi, which were smaller and didn't weigh as much as the abridged plates did. And then when they were, after he showed them to the, the people, the eight witnesses, Joseph and Oliver returned them to the Hill Cumorah. That's why they went into the repository that uh, Oliver Cowdery described. Now, the next question is oh, what happened to the plates? In the cave. Well, they called it a cave or a room. That's, the room. I, I call, I'll room. call it a room. Right. A man-made cave, you could say, which would be fun to talk about someday. We yeah. don't have time to hear it. We will. But, um, but so what, I, what happened in my view is when Brigham Young talked about this and Heber C. Kimball, they talked about this room being full of plates, right? And there was a shelf in there with plates on it. And they were stacked from the floor up. There's a table. And, but the way they talked about the quantity of plates was in terms of wagon loads. And I, I, I can't remember which one said one. One said more than a six-mule team could carry. The other said several wagon loads of plates. And so when I, when I was putting this all together and I realized, okay, there are two sets of plates. Oliver and Joseph took him back to the repository in the Hill Cumorah. Why would Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball talk about wagon loads of plates unless Joseph and Oliver moved them? And I think that they moved them back to the Hill Shim. And part of the, there's, there's some corroboration of this. Oliver Cowdery said in, in letter number eight, he said the plates are no longer in, in Camorra, in the Hill Camorra. Right. And David Whitmer was asked about this. He said, well, where are the plates now? And he said, well, they're in New York. And the person said, are they in the Hill Camorra? And he said, no, but they're not far from there. And those, he said, those, those adventurers from Rochester will never find them. And that's, I put two and two together and I said, well, wait a minute. Okay, if Brigham Young and Hebrew Kimball were talking about wagon loads of plates and Oliver Cowdery and, and David Whitmer said they were no longer in the Hill Camorra. And we know the Hill Shim was the repository before and it wasn't that far away from Camorra because Mormon moved them all to the Hill Camorra. Then I think they moved them back to the Hill Shim and that's where they still are. So where did this narrative come from? Where, where they said, oh, well, the angels took the plates back. I, I haven't researched that. I don't know. Where 
Yeah, well, of course. It, it, I I don't believe that. I mean, it, to me, that's a ridiculous idea because th that gets into the whole stone on the hat thing. Why would we even need the plates if if he just read words off? And, and we have a question on that, which I promised Newton Lemnos. We will <laughs> discuss that because I know just barely enough about Jonathan's idea that the stone in the hat he disagrees with. So right. the idea of not even needing the plates. Jonathan Neville has a different response to right. than the Mesoamericanists say, and we—I promise—we'll do another show. But I do want to get Richard Nigren his question. Okay. Yes, do you think you will ever? With Mike I love that question. And, and my response is yes. Just as soon as Mike Parker quits imitating Steve Smoot, who keeps imitating Dan Peterson, and quit trying to be so blasted, <laughs> over intelligent, and snot nosed about it, and talk like real scholars, that's when I would decide to sit down with you. But I've seen their comments, and I am singularly unimpressed impressed with your attitude of denigration and i also have another friend called paul osborne who goes by the name of shulam if you want to fight i'll put you up against him <laughs> in this mesoamerican theory and quite frankly he'll kick your ass from here to breakfast so if we can be friends that'd be great that's well, well carry let, let me ask you this question first off um, I don't. I don't know Mike. I'm sure he's a great guy. You know, yes, he's a great. wonderful man. And when so, he wants to be. But someone told me that he, he was the one going by Peter Pan. Yeah, and he's admitted that apparently. Okay. I've seen the blog post, so it's and, good. And for me. I, I like that uh, pseudonym because Peter Pan never grows up. Right? He's a child, and, he's, <laughs> and so to me, maybe if Mike is growing up enough to be rational and and you know about it i'd be happy to talk to him yeah that'd be I, great I just, if he abandoned the peter pan persona as well as the name then we're in good shape because I, I feel like everybody is sincere everybody's trying to do the right thing and i i acknowledge i've acknowledged this many times that when i first got into this i was provocative and part of that was yeah. because I, I read what they did with rod meldrum early on where they were asserting all their credentials and there's intellectual superiority and all this. And to me, that was outrageous. So I responded on behalf of Rod. And I feel like it was well-deserved. But there is also an element of persuasion involved with that, because if I had just come out and, and talked about what I think and not been provocative, this would have all been brushed aside. And by being provocative early on, obviously attracted the attention of Mike Parker and Dan Peterson and those guys. Yeah. Um, it forced them to kind of address it. And I, it's funny because I, I read the Neville Neverland blog one time and I thought, I don't want to give this any energy and it's so juvenile anyway, it's not worth the dealing with. Right, right. But I could, people would email me their stuff anyway, you know. Oh, with and I could tell off, frequently whenever they would blow up about some issue, the hits on my blog just skyrocketed because everybody wanted to know what they were talking about. Sure. Same with Dan. Every time Dan refers to it, I get a bunch more hits. And yeah. so I don't I don't mind doing it. Yeah. But again, I don't I, I never really intended to be the spouting whale to get get all the harpoons. But I'm happy well, to they, do it. They because... probably never intended to be the gatekeepers and trying to get everybody else excommunicated who think differently than they do. Either, <laughs> well, so, you know, when they when you come up I with a name, they like... give the brethren more headaches than heartwarmings. 
probably just like you guys do, because I think overall the church leaders probably just wish one, either Jesus would finally come and tell us the truth about geography, where did it happen, or two, all the rest of us to quit worrying about it and just take it for its spiritual merits. The brethren, you guys, you know, the brethren gray, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, today we had in our in our elders quorum, we discussed Elder Renlund's talk about Revelation. And one of the points he made in there was that the Lord won't reveal something that he's already revealed. That's why we have the scriptures. And as far as I'm concerned, the Lord told us a long time ago where Kimura was. And ever since we, this, the academics rejected that, we've been floundering around with these arguments and this nonsense about, you know, speculating about Book of Mormon geography and all that in all different parts of the world and finding these quote unquote correspondences with Mayans. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous on its face to me. And so, but it was, it's a question the Lord answered all the way back in 1835. Actually, if you believe Lucy Mack Smith in 1823. And so, why we're continually relitigating this issue is a perplexing thing to me, and it causes a lot of confusion. So I'm I'm hopeful that as more and more Latter-day Saints, everybody involved with the Restoration Movement, even if they don't accept the Book of Mormon as Scripture, but well, if everybody can go back and say, well, the, the people who had first firsthand personal experience said this, who are we to say they were wrong? You know, <laughs> I mean, come on, it's... it's it's ridiculous. And so I, there's all kinds of ways you can use sophistry to justify your rejection of what Oliver Cowdery said. But the yeah. bottom line is they're rejecting it. And of course, it causes confusion. So anyway, I'm, I'm hopeful we can resolve it in a friendly way. And I'd love to meet Mike. And if he's yeah. more than welcome to come to Oregon. I, I used um, to I hang out with him and several of the boys in the fair conferences, which I miss. And uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun. I had a lot yeah. of fun video on sure. those guys. I, I don't know if they'd ever let me back there because I wouldn't just sit there and nod my head yes to every presentation like I used to, you know. But I used to love videoing them and interviewing them. So, <laughs> ah, the good old days. <laughs> I, I've gone to a couple of the fair conferences, and I feel like I'm I'm in a bubble where nobody wants to come near me. <laughs> it's so bizarre because I I think they're great guys, you know, great. They people. are, but yeah, they, boy, they, they don't. They don't even want to shake your hand or anything. They have this very defensive. It's all right. The The church yeah. in Jesus's day had self-righteous Pharisees too. So we've got a <laughs> day. So. I don't want to label anybody, but okay. I, I get I your will. point. So. I will. It's my show. So but it just reminds me. <laughs> there you go. There's okay. hope, Jonathan, because. And, so I, and I know they can do like the self-righteous Pharisees in the New Testament yeah. and better themselves, too. So, mm -hmm. so Steve, what, what were you just saying? Well, Steve, I, I was just going to say that, you know, for many years when Sandra Tanner would attend the Mormon History Association, she had the same experience you had yeah. going to fair Mormon things. Now, the first MHA I went to, she was treated as a guest of honor and sat on a very prominent panel. So I think I don't know, Jonathan. I'm just saying. Maybe maybe the same thing could happen where yep. because it's the thing, this is the thing. The whole reason I started this channel was to be a safe space where people right. could come and bring their ideas. Exactly. I even tell people if the if the if the Heartlander model was the dominant model, guess what? I would be having Mesoamerican people on my program to talk about it because I feel mm -hmm. it's important that all these uh, different voices are heard. And so and I just find you to be a fascinating dude 
you're an original thinker. You're actually, and you're also engaging evangelicals. They're getting in touch with you. You're talking to them. Yeah, you're actually right. bridges, doing the very thing the church wants to have done. Whereas the other approaches have been off-putting. There are no evangelicals that engage them at all. But yet yeah. you're talking to evangelical scholars. And yeah. I think that's the beautiful thing about what we're doing here is we're actually building bridges because in this society we live in, we need to be talking to each other. That's the main thing. Absolutely. That's true. And and yeah. we're doing that. We're do I would be happy to have any of the Mesoamerican scholars on here and let them share their information as well. Sure. And uh, I, I think that'd be fun. I think I know their theory a little better than yours. So it's Hang on. Take Hang on just one second. This is an important phone call. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Oh, he's not going to put it on the speaker. Hey, what, what? I'm on delay. Oh, hey, this is Dan Vogel. <laughs> Dan Vogel. Okay. okay. Oh, I, I, I can't see them all. Can you hold on? Let me look. You know, you know what, Carrie? I, I'm getting overtime. I'm getting. I'm going to have to leave, but I'd be happy to do more questions uh, another time. Okay. Yeah, he I, said, I've got about three more minutes. Yeah, he's only got three more minutes. Then he's got to go on another engagement. So keep track of that question, and we he will be happy to. We'll have him on again here shortly, uh, tomorrow morning at six a.m. or something like that. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> But yeah, hang on to that. Okay, I'm going to close this out and I'll call you later. Thanks, okay. Dan. See, my audience, they rock. They care about this. They're awesome. Man. That's awesome. I'm I telling like it. Yeah. yeah, he said both him and RFM had questions. And RFM, you too, if you'll keep track of that question, please. And all of you, whoever you are, keep track of your questions. We'll be happy to have uh, Jonathan back. So, yeah. and next time we'll have a longer question and answer period. We just wanted to Absolutely. get. I, I love the Q and A. In fact, I, we could even start off with Q and A if you want. Hey, we and, could do and, a full, as a follow up to this, and then move into the translation or whatever happened oh, to the okay. plates or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So be before we go, uh, Steve, do you have do you have any last words of wisdom you'd like to share? Well, you know, I just want to say that, you know, you and I, we, we, we all got on a Zoom call yesterday, and I thought it was a real positive, edifying conversation that we all had. And we all come from different perspectives and different worldviews. And I think mm -hmm. that people can also see the same spirit was here tonight. And whether mm -hmm. you're atheist, whether you're, uh, you know, evangelical, TBM, progressive, nuanced, it really doesn't matter that we can former actually talk. Apologist. A former apologist, man. <laughs> and man, getting to know you, Carrie, has been a real blessing to me in my life. Quit. I, I love you, brother. Oh, and, tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> and it was great to spend some time with you when you came out to the uh, movie screening. But also, one of the I tell people one of the proudest things that I did with my channel was that I gave Jonathan. He kind of was just viewed as this Heartlander guy, and he was kind of in that ecosystem in many ways. He, he had done some other stuff, but but I I got him because I said I recognize as an outsider, as somebody who doesn't have a dog in this fight. I thought he had something very important to say. I thought he did a lot of original research that needed to be taken seriously by scholars. And so, and then, then, then having you on this forum with Jonathan on this forum, I think has been, has been great. I want to thank you for affording this, this to me, giving me the opportunity to be a co-host and affording this opportunity to Jonathan to actually truly engage. Dan Vogel's on the phone. RFM wants to talk to you. I guarantee you Thomas Murphy and all these other people are wanting to engage Jonathan Neville. 
Isn't that interesting, folks? They want to talk to Jonathan yeah. and they have questions for him. I think that's good. Well, they're they're pretty hardcore skeptical too. So this good. will be yeah. a great way to and test sides. Yeah. By yeah. proving contraries, truth is made manifest. So. That's right. Okay, so Jonathan, do you have any last words you'd like to say before we close out? I think I've said more than enough. <laughs> oh, I don't. <laughs> We've only just begun. We've well, let me begun. tell you, I, I, I will say you guys are fun to work with. To have a conversations with. I, I love the spirit of this. I like the, the approach that we all share of multiple working hypotheses and focusing on understanding rather than trying to convince somebody of something. True. To me, you know, it's almost a, when people try so hard to convince somebody, to me, that exemplifies their insecurity. You know, it's like they're not comfortable with their own beliefs. They have to have numbers to justify it or something. And, and I think it's more important for us to all understand where we're coming from and then find common areas that we can work together to make the world a better place. And so I, I love what you guys are doing. I'm glad to be part of it. And I encourage us all to move forward. Yep. Thank you. That's very, very, very well put, both of you. And uh, yeah, we are we are in the process of uh, having that's what we're all about. Conversations, discussions. Don't worry about arguments and converting people to your point of view. Let's explore. Right. I'm going to use the wonderful metaphor that they gave to Hugh Nibley. I will give it to you, Jonathan Neville, and I say this as a compliment. Um, okay. Nibley had the metaphor, or, or Farms had the metaphor of Hugh Nibley that he was... It's true. He was a hop, skip and jump scholar. But what he was doing was he was going through a great big gigantic motel, opening doors, looking in and saying, oh, hey, that's interesting. Then he would yeah. go to the next door without exploring the room in depth and he would open doors for others. That's what we're trying to do. Something to that effect anyway. We're just I like that one. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I like that metaphor. So, okay, everybody, thank you so okay. much for your attendance. We appreciate y'all. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, I will have Rebecca Biblioteca and Jordan from Mormonish. We are we have a heck of a subject. Don't forget Wednesday night, Mormonism Live. We are going to get out of here. I love y'all. Be good, do well, have fun, work hard, stay friends, and I'll see you next time. Heck yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs>